We're just going to read from Matthew chapter 28 from verses 18 to 20. Um, And that's then there behind me. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Um, I'm Jeremy, I'm the lead pastor here at City Light and it's so good to be meeting with you this morning. Um, If it's your first time and I haven't met you yet, I'd love to um, get a chance to have a chat to you after service. Uh, If you're tuning in online as well, um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, Feel free to message us, we would love to get in touch if you want to know anything about church life. Um, And it's great to be kicking off this series together and also great to have started with a bit of brekkie beforehand. I feel, can we just thank Anna for organising that in the team? I feel like we should do that every week, right? That's <laughs> especially because I didn't organize it. So it was great to actually do beforehand. Um, but as, uh, as Jacob was saying, this series for the next three weeks is called Next. And it's looking at what's next for us as a church as we step into 2022. Uh, and this week we're going to be looking at where it is that we really want to be at the end of the year, God willing and in His grace. Next week we're going to look at what that's going to require us in terms of serving to actually pull together to do that. And then the last week, we're going to look at what that's going to require of us when it comes to giving and financial generosity. So those are our three weeks as we step through it. But as Jacob mentioned, we laid out last year that uh, our mission as a church never changes. Jesus calls us to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. And we thought if we were to do that faithfully over the next few years, then what we would become is a growing, healthy, multi-generational church having an impact across Sydney. And last year, we said we'd address two things. One was our building. We were already kind of hitting the limits of our building up there on Darling Street. And so we made the move to come down here to the high school. And the other thing we said we'd do is to work on our governance to make it more accountable, transparent and effective. And we did that also. And so those were two big steps forward towards becoming this. But now it's up to what's next. And given the current circumstances, you could be forgiven for thinking, look, we had a big year last year. Let's just... Let's just put our feet up and just let's take a beat, right? But I think if last year taught us anything, it's that it's never good to play for a draw. If you kind of wind back to that highlights video from before, if we had just tried to play it safe, bunker down, just try and just lay down until the the pandemic's over, we probably would have missed most of the evidences of God's grace in our community over last year. And so with that in mind, we really want to step forward. We really want to reach more people And we want to do this for the sake of the gospel. Now, we're not going to do it to just push everyone absolutely to their limits and past it. We want to do this in a way that's wise and stepping forward together. But if you understand the gospel and Jesus' commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, you'll know that every follower of Jesus is a missionary and that a healthy church is a missional church that's looking outward, even in a pandemic. So we're in a church in Sydney, Australia. And I realize, obviously, that is the least interesting thing that I could possibly say. But I want to ask this question. Why are you in Sydney? People move to cities for all kinds of reasons. And usually, it's because there is something that we would like to get from the city. 
for some people, moving to the city is kind of like kind of like one of those cash box activities. Have you ever seen on like a morning show or you know the footy show or something like that where they'll put someone in a perspex box and you give them a minute and there's a pile of cash in there and they start like a a fan that then blows all the cash around it and you've got like one minute to get as much as you can and then get out of there. For some people, moving to the city is like the cash box. Get in, get a promotion, get on the grind, work as hard as you possibly can, get as much as you can and then move to some semi-affordable part of the country where you can actually spend it reasonably. And that's the kind of game, get in, get the cash and get out. For others, it's relationships. This is where family is. This is where you grew up, this is where your closest friends are, and this is where your extended family is. For others, it's for a relationship. You moved to Sydney to actually find yourself in a relationship or because a relationship had started, and that's what brought you to this city. For others, it's the lifestyle. Cities is where culture is made, and so you wanted to come to the epicenter where there's action, where there's opportunities. For others still, you moved from another country to get an education or an opportunity that wasn't available somewhere else. For others, it was to get away from family and to start again, to kind of establish yourself as your own person with a new identity and to find out who you really are. People move to cities for all of these kinds of reasons. Now, for many of us, it's maybe one of these or a combination of all of them. But most people come to Sydney or are in Sydney because there is something we want to get out of it. And the problem comes when we don't get the thing that we are hoping to get out of it, we become restless and sometimes resentful. It might be that you moved here to find identity and you still find yourself just as lost as ever. And it's frustrating. You moved for a relationship and that didn't happen or it broke down and now you're feeling kind of stuck. It might be that you actually feel resentful towards the city because you're like, all my family are here, my work is here, and I really can't afford to live here, and so I just resent it. Maybe it's that you came to find an opportunity and a new way of living, but all you're finding is that it's grind and hard work. But often it's the case that we are in cities because there's something that we want out of it. But what if you were to flip the question? What if it wasn't the case that you were here to get something from the city, but you were sent to the city to do something. If you are here and you follow Jesus, you are sent by Jesus to this city. And you are sent as a missionary. And your job might be many and varied, but your one task is to be here to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. And that while you're in Sydney for however long that may be, that is the mission that Jesus has given you. And so I'm going to be diving into this passage that Jacob read out just before. And I wanted to speak from this passage because actually around this time last year I spoke from the same passage. And you might think, why are we going into the same one? A couple of reasons. One, I'm not that good a preacher, so no one's going to remember what I said anyway. <laughs> but two, God's, we never get to the bottom of God's Word. And you can mine and dive as deep as you like in it, and there are always going to be new insights and new understandings of God and ourselves to draw from it. But thirdly also, we're prone to wander. We hear God's word, we walk away, and we forget about it completely. And so we want to come back to Matthew 28, why it is that we exist and why it is that we are here, that we might, even in the midst of a pandemic, in the third year of it, not lose sight of what it is that we are called to do and to be in Jesus. I'm going to pray for us this morning. Father, we praise you that you love us, that you don't leave us as orphans in the world, 
You have sent your Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to guide us, and to lead us on mission as we follow Jesus. We pray we would never forget that we have been saved by your eternally good grace, that we'd never forget the blood of Jesus poured out for us, that we wouldn't forget the goodness of the gospel and the hope and the peace and joy that it brings, and that might lead us to want to see others come to know you as well. We pray this for the sake of your holy name. Amen. Well, this passage starts with the risen Lord Jesus speaking to his disciples, and he says to them, All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. This is what the risen Lord Jesus says to them. They are standing before these 11 disciples. They were 12, they're down to 11. Judas betrayed Jesus, he is no longer with them. And they are standing before the resurrected Jesus. And it is a central and indispensable claim of the gospel that Jesus physically rose from the dead. If you are not particularly familiar with the gospel, it's important to know that Christians don't believe that Jesus rose in our hearts. The resurrection isn't a spiritual metaphor for Jesus. It's not that Jesus lives on in our memories and in our hearts, and as we follow his teachings, it's like he's alive with us. The claim of the Bible is that Jesus actually rose from the dead that there were eyewitnesses who staked their lives on the, on the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, Paul the Apostle said, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, our faith is useless. It's sentimentality. It's a waste of time. The whole of the Christian faith is staked upon the historical claim that Jesus physically rose from the dead and conquered death. And that's why he stands before them and says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I don't want you to miss how powerful this is because we can brush over that quickly. Just think what these disciples have witnessed. Just remember that they were there when Jesus was put on false trial under false accusations. That they actually witnessed him. Imagine being a disciple, watching your friend and leader who you've followed for three years get beaten up in front of you. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation where you've witnessed a fight where you couldn't intervene But it's a harrowing situation. Now imagine these disciples watching Jesus have strips torn off him as he is beaten. That people are mocking him. That they're spitting on him. And even after that, you're probably thinking in your mind, this can't be happening. Jesus always finds a way out. We've been backed into a corner before and Jesus always knows the way through. He's got something up his sleeve. He's going to do something. But then you see him marching to the cross. And you can see the life draining out of him. And then you see them hammer nails through his hands and his feet. And at that point, you're probably starting to think, maybe Jesus isn't going to get out of this one. But he's not gone yet. Surely there's something that's going to happen. And while he's up on the cross, he breathes his last and he cries out, it is finished, and his body collapses. And at that point, you might be thinking, well, we've seen him do miracles. We've seen him raise others from the dead. So maybe there's something still yet to come. But then they take his lifeless body off the cross and they run a spear through his side, and blood mixed with water comes out, and you know that he is dead. And at that moment, imagine what would be going through your mind. You'd be thinking, oh my gosh, what have I done? I left my family to follow this guy, and he's dead. The movement's over. Not only that, but it's not over, because they just killed the leader of the movement, and surely they're coming for me next, and the rest of the disciples. And that's exactly what they were thinking. They locked themselves away because they were so scared about what was going to happen next. But then three days later, 
they meet the risen Lord Jesus and it finally all makes sense. Jesus explains to them what happened. explains to them that he had to die their death that they had earned through their sin because all of us have sinned against God and all of us have earned the wrath of God and that Jesus faced that on the cross. And so he stands before them to say, I've defeated sin and death. And then a few weeks later, they're standing before him and he's about to give them their great commission. Could you ever be more ready to listen to someone than that? There are two types of people that you will listen to. You listen to people who are powerful, that is, they have the power to make your life better or worse. You'll listen to those kind of people. If they ask you to do something, you're going to pay attention to it because they have power over you. They can make things go really well, they can make things go really bad for you. The other type of person you'll listen to may not have much power, but you know that they love you. And if someone really loves you, you're willing to listen to them, aren't you? They're standing before Jesus, knowing that he is at once the most powerful and most loving person they could ever possibly know. And so they are ready to listen to him. I don't want us to miss this as we hear Jesus' words. Do you know that no one has ever or could ever love you as much as Jesus? And not just love you, that he actually likes you as well. Because you, you could be tempted to think, well, of course he loves me. He's, he's God. He kind of has to do that. It's like a teacher or something like that. They kind of they have to serve you, right? It's their job. But it wasn't his job to do this. He went to the cross willingly. He actually loves you. And not only that, but you might know someone in your life who would say, I would die for you. And it's, it's actually true. You know that that's the case. And they would potentially love you that much. And yet they haven't. Jesus doesn't say, I would die for you. I potentially love you that much. He says, I have suffered death for you. I do love you that much. And so this great commission starts with the gospel. The authority of Jesus comes from both his power and his great love towards you. And so the disciples are there and they're like, whatever he has to say, we are absolutely ready to listen. We are ready to hear this. And what does he say to them? He says, go therefore. And the therefore is because of his authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. He says, therefore, because I have all the authority, I'm telling you guys, the thing you need to do is to go. Go to the nations and baptize them and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. This is his commission. It's super clear. Make more disciples, people who had no faith, who did not know Jesus, coming to know Jesus, be forgiven and made new in him. And then he says, and once they know me and have been baptized, then teach them everything I've taught you. Make more disciples, and once they're disciples, make them stronger. He says, make disciples of all nations. And that's true of the church today. The commission continues to God's people. It was passed down through the apostles. See, if you just focus on one or the other, the church culture really won't be healthy, will it? If your church focuses only on reaching people, it can end up a church that's a mile wide and yet just an inch deep. The focus is always on getting someone to just pray a prayer, to put their hand up, to come down the front. But then there isn't really a follow-up discipleship where they come to understand the implications of the gospel, live it out, and then become disciple makers themselves. And so church can just be a revolving door of people who've had a church experience that came and went and have rolled through. But similarly, it can go the other way. Instead of seeing that, that, that Jesus calls us to reach people, you can just focus on the church that's here and now. 
churches with great Bible teaching, a great focus on discipleship and following Jesus. But ultimately, reaching people is kind of like a like wishful thinking. Every Easter and Christmas, you maybe throw a Hail Mary out there and see what happens. But really, it's not a focus. The main focus becomes keeping the people who are already here, here, making sure they don't leave and go to the world, and making sure everyone stays happy. And when you do that, a church context can become pretty unhealthy. I remember a while ago at a church being in a meeting where the entirety of the meeting, and it went for a good half hour to an hour, was about the fact that we had removed name tags from the back. Now, if you are just here and checking out church for the first time, or you're new to church, you may not know that it does happen in churches occasionally that you'll walk in and there's a table up the back that has name tags on it. And so you'll go up the back, you'll peel off a tag that has your name and put put it on you. But of course, the problem is, and the reason we're getting rid of them, is because <laughs> coming to a church, if you're brand new to church, and I know some of you here have experienced this, can be like, it can be kind of intimidating. You, you worry like, I don't know what's going to happen there. Is everyone going to know I'm the new person? Are they going to point me out in the middle of the service or whatever it is? And going up the back and having a table with name tags where you have to go up, get, choose a blank one and write your name on it and then display for everyone to see that you are the new person makes it worse, right? So they were kind of taken away. But the fact that it, was, it took so much kind of time debating was, ju- was a sign that we'd kind of lost focus on what really mattered. We lost focus on the fact that the church is called to be reaching people and not fighting over things that are minor details. And when churches forget their mission, they lose perspective really quickly. And it all becomes about what's going to make my best experience here right now. I like this kind of music. I like this way of doing church. I like it to go for this amount of time. And it all becomes entirely around what we want to do. And it's unhealthy. And often churches have to fight mission drift. Now you might think, if Jesus charged the church to go out and make disciples, why would the church forget it so easily? I reckon there's one very easy reason. It's because mission is hard. It's very hard. The mission that Jesus gives his disciples is actually impossible. Just think, he stands in front of 11 untrained, uneducated, and very afraid men. And he says to them, Go to all the nations and make disciples. It is a mission impossible. And yet, here we are in Australia hearing the exact same gospel, hearing the exact same words of Jesus because Jesus' church was faithful to it. And what happened? What happened was Acts 1.8. Look what happens in Acts 1.8. Jesus says to his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He says to them, You are not able to do this yourselves, but I will be with you until the end of the age. And the way that he'll be with us is he sends his Holy Spirit, God, to actually dwell in your hearts to complete the mission that you could not complete without him. We right now are in a very hard time. We're in way over our heads. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Culturally, we're in the middle of a culture war, so we're in the middle of a pandemic culture war. You add on top of that the spiritual forces that the Bible says are against the mission of God, you realize that we're in way over our heads. And these last two years have been tough. I imagine for many of you in this room, these might have been two of the toughest years of your life. I can honestly say, in these last couple of years, I've been closer to breaking point than I ever have in my entire life. 
And I imagine that there'd be more than a few hands up in the room who could testify to the same thing. That it's been rough. Some of you, who are followers of Jesus, have seen friends deconstruct their faith and walk away, and it's been discouraging. Some of you have found it hard just to connect with other believers and even just coming to church or meeting ups in groups has been incredibly difficult over this time and it's probably been discouraging and difficult. You see the fights and discouragements with major leaders falling, with fighting that's happening within the church overseas and all of that can make you think like, I just want to bunker down for the next little while. But Jesus says, I'll be with you for this. And not only that, but he told us that this stuff would happen in advance so that we would know that this wasn't out of his plan. Look what he says in Matthew 24, 9 to 14. He says, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus doesn't promise that it will be easy, but he says, I will be with you through it. Yeah, there's going to be trouble. He promises that there will be wars and pandemics and all kinds of difficulty and opposition. And he says, many will fall away. The love of some will grow cold and it will be discouraging. But he says, this will happen before the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. And he says, I will be with you. Do you know as a parent, I would love to be able to promise to my kids that I could make their life easy and take away every possible obstacle in front of them. But I know that if I were to do that, it would actually make their life worse. It's what you call, you've heard of helicopter parents? Helicopter parents was like a phrase in the 90s about parents who kind of were overly supervisory of their kids. They've now been replaced by what's called snowplow parents. So they're next level parents who, helicopter parents supervise their kids a lot and were always there to help. Snowplow parents go ahead of their kids to make sure no obstacles in their path. You failed an exam, I'm going to call the principal. Right? You, you crashed your car, I'll buy you a new one. Right? So on and so forth. You get the idea. And you know that that is not a healthy way to raise resilient kids, is it? Now, as a parent, the best thing you can do is to say, I can't promise you that life will be easy. In fact, I can promise you that life is going to be difficult and hard, but I'll be with you through it. That's my promise. Jesus promises that the gospel will go out, and he promises to be with us. He loves us. And we are called to reach people, to continue the mission of God, even when it's difficult. And the truth is that we most clearly experience his presence and his love with us when we're on mission for Jesus. I heard some solid advice from a seasoned pastor who said, if you're feeling dry or distant in your faith, it's worth asking, when was the last time I tried to share the gospel with someone? He's saying in this passage in Matthew 28, the context for Jesus' promise that he'll be with us is the context of making more and stronger disciples. Often when you speak to missionaries who've been in a challenging missionary context overseas and you ask them about what it's like returning back to Sydney, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, many will reflect that while being overseas was difficult, that it was the closest they've felt to Jesus and one of the biggest challenges of being home is being comfortable and feeling a sense of distance between them and God. Isn't that remarkable? 
Because oftentimes when you're speaking to them, you're thinking like, surely it must be such a relief to be back where there's just better health services, where there's, things are just that bit easier. But oftentimes, what missionaries miss the most is just how close they were with Jesus. We were made for mission. We were made to thrive on mission. And this is the catch-22 of the pandemic. It's because we're feeling tired and maybe a bit dry and distant in the faith. And we're like, I just don't have the energy to think about how I might be sharing the gospel with people or, or thinking or praying about those who, who don't yet know him. And so then we start to feel more dry, which means we feel less energy to be on mission, and so on it goes round and round. But Jesus' words in Matthew 28 are to break the cycle. He calls us to make more and stronger disciples, and he says, I will be with you. I will be with you. And it's not just true individually, it's also true corporately. That churches grow healthy when they're on mission for Jesus. That when we together are trying to get something done, it is good for a church to stretch themselves, to risk things financially and, and independently. We used to do a thing, I actually met Mel, my wife, on a thing called Beach Mission. Can I just get a quick show of hands, who actually knows what a beach mission is? Okay, there's a few, alright, that's probably more than I thought. To give you some context, I don't expect everyone to know what these are. They've been around for a while, but basically you would head to like usually a caravan park, a holiday destination, and it's a bunch of you who've never really met before. There might be a few people that you know if you go to church. There's, there's some from your own church. Um, and you, you form a team and you run programs for kids, adults, all that, to share the gospel with people that you've never met before. So you set up tents in a, in a, a caravan park and then just go for it. And it's a, it's a wild time. There is, because it's over New Year's every year, you, just, if you wind up in some wild New Year's situations as you're guarding the tents from people just walking through the park and all this sort of stuff. But I remember one year, there was a bunch of really tough kids from the caravan park who, because they didn't have much on, decided that their holiday activity would be to heckle the Christians. Because it's a soft target. You know they're not going to fight back. Like, it's just, if you've got nothing to do, why not? And so they'd sit, they'd sit on this fence in the distance and just like, just heckle the kids who would like a part of the youth program or anything like that. And, um, and one day, one of the leaders had just had enough. He was tired and we were a few days into it and he'd been working hard and it was hot and all of that. And he went up and let him have it. And this isn't a mission or strategy, but he ended up swearing at one of the kids. Not one of the top tier swear words, but kind of just let him know what he thought of him. And afterwards, as the director of that beach mission, I heard about what happened. I was like, this is, this is not great for our witness here at the caravan park. And he knew he'd done the wrong thing, and so he actually did the right thing and went back to the kid and apologised, but also said, you shouldn't have been a, you know, whatever I called you or whatever, um, but, um, but apologised for how he'd acted. And that actually, funnily enough, created a bridge with this group of kids and they then, because they were kind of like the mainstay kids of the caravan park, ended up being the kids that came back for the next five years and brought everyone with them. Now again, I'm not recommending that as a strategy. But as a team, the stress of being on mission, the challenges, the craziness of all of that, just brought everyone together. We were praying about it. He had to do things like he had to go and deal with his own sin, that he'd lost his temper at someone, and go and apologize for that and ask for forgiveness. And it just meant that we had to more and more just trust Jesus and to step out in faith in following him. It's good for God's people to be on mission together. It is hard, but it's good. And it's going to mean sacrifices. Do you know what? Even being here, sitting in this building, has meant sacrifices. 
You guys laid out money at the beginning of next year to pay for the rent for this building. And we came down here, and it's, it's hot in here, right? <laughs> like, over summer, you may have noticed that it gets a little bit warm in here. We didn't come down here for comfort. We did it to make more room so that we could reach people better. Mission is hard but good. And it's right that we would follow Jesus into this. And so we this year want to step into that more and more. And I want you to imagine what this church could be like as we step into God's mission over this year. Imagine this room full to the back of people from all generations who have actually come to find the forgiveness and grace of Jesus for the first time. Imagine a community of believers where some of those new believers are your friends and family who have actually come to experience the grace and forgiveness that you have found in Jesus for the first time. A missional church is a church that grows and is healthy. A missional church is a multi-generational church that's looking to pass on to the gospel to the next generation. Just think how countercultural it is for a community to look down at its next generation as the future instead of the end. You know the pattern at the moment is that every generation looks at the next generation like these guys are the end of us, right? Boomers look down on Gen Xs and they're like, oh my gosh, this is the end of civilization as we know it. Then they went through and they're like, Gen Xs have got nothing on millennials. Look, they are an absolute mess. And then for us millennials, we were bottom of the pile for a long time until finally we had Gen Z. And we're like, oh, look at this, look at this pile of battlers. Now we've got someone to finally look down on and criticize. Look how unreliable they are. And every generation comforts themselves with the fact that they're not as bad as the next generation. It's, it's not a great situation for unity, is it? But imagine instead a community that look to the next generation as the future rather than the end. Like these are the next women and men who are going to pass on the gospel and share it and contextualize it for the next generation. Who love seeing the fact that there are kids and youth amongst it. Who love seeing that there are people from every generation. Where younger look to the older knowing that they have wisdom that you can't accumulate without a few years of following Jesus. And an older generation who look hopefully on the next generation and encourage them in the struggles and challenges that they're facing. A genuinely multi-generational church. This is what we're looking to be. This is what we're looking to be going forward. And so what's next for us? Our hope is that at Christmas this year, that there would be new people who have come to faith from every generation. 20s, 30s, 40s, kids, youth, all of that, gathering with us and praising Jesus at Christmas this year, having come to faith. And that there'd be more people in each generation. And that this Christmas we'd be able to celebrate that together and to see that Jesus has been at work in our community. And so how do we see this happening? Well, there are two possible ways to go about it. We could either do a great campaign to try and steal Christians or something from other churches, which would be, obviously by the tone of it, a terrible idea. Or we could follow what Jesus says and look to reach and teach people the gospel. And as individuals... I have two challenges, one as individuals and one as a church. As individuals, imagine how it would go if this year every one of us here who followed Jesus saw ourselves as a missionary to our own neighborhood and started to look at your neighborhood as though you were God's sent missionary to that neighborhood. And so here's the challenge I want to put out there. On the 27th of March, there is something that you may have heard of called Neighbor Day. And the reason that Neighbor Day started... Uh, was because Andrew Heslop heard of a woman, he lives in Melbourne, 
He heard of a woman who had passed away in her own home and was not discovered for two years. And he was shocked by the fact that people could live next door to someone and not even know that they existed. And he was so struck by it that he decided we needed to do something about it and started something called Neighbor Day. And this year will be the 20th anniversary of it. And it's certainly an application of the gospel in following Jesus that if we are called to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would look to our neighborhoods and look to serve and to love them like Jesus would. And so the challenge I want to put to you is to take up Neighbor Day this year. We now have just a service in the morning, so we've got the whole Arvo free to do this with our neighbors. And it might be as small as having just one set of neighbors around for lunch, or you might go 11 out of 10 and throw a full block party. I would love to see at least a couple of block parties initiated by people, even, even if it doesn't work out that great, just to have a go at it. But to start seeing ourselves as people who were sent to this city to serve the city and not just to get something from it. And after two years of a pandemic where loneliness is at an all-time high, where we might start to show that the gospel actually reconciles and brings people back together. And so to do that this year, that's the first one, is Neighbor Day. And you'll be hearing more about that in the weeks leading up to it. But the second one is this. Easter this year, we would love to see this place packed with people who've never even heard the gospel before. And for the first time this year, we're doing Easter Friday and Resurrection Sunday. Yeah, I reckon that's worth it. I had a mild woo down there. We want it to be a great time. It is, it is one of the two times in the year in a mostly secular city where a Christian holiday is actually celebrated. And it's a great opportunity to be sharing the gospel of Jesus for people to understand the real meaning of Easter. And off the back of that, to do an Alpha this year, we started it last year. It's been a great time helping people to understand the faith and to see what hope there is in Jesus. And so we'd love to push into that. That's just two things over this first term this year that would step us towards being a healthy, growing, multi-generational church, having an impact across Sydney. Let's pray that God would be merciful to us this year. Father, we praise you that you are so faithful to us, that you are so good. We just pray that more and more this year, we would experience a deeper and deeper encouragement and understanding that you are with us. I pray for those here who follow you, who are just feeling tired and burdened and discouraged, that you would supply them fresh grace, that your spirit would enliven their hearts, that they'd be struck anew by the love of Jesus, by your love for them that they would feel that you are near and with them. And Father, as individuals and as a church, we pray that we would be people who love our neighbor well, who look not only to our own needs but to the needs of others and see that in that, that you supply our strength and grace, that we most experience your presence with us as we step out in faith to reach people for the sake of your holy name. Help us to be humble and loving and to exemplify Christ in every way. And Father, we pray that you would do this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.